Romans chapter 7. We're going to be finishing up the back half or the back two-thirds of this particular chapter. Uh, We've entitled it The Conflict of Two Natures. Uh, We're going to see that we have this sin nature, and it's in conflict or at war with our new nature, our nature that that we receive when we come to Christ. And so these uh, these two natures are going to be in conflict with one another, and we're going to see just how that plays out, what Paul has to say about it. But up until this point, Paul, the bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Romans has been termed or can be coined as Paul's gospel. And so his gospel, the good news, he says, is the power of God unto salvation for everyone, for anyone who would believe. That is the good news. The righteous man shall live by faith. We've been going over that the last several weeks. Nothing we can do can get us right with God other than believing in his son. The righteous man, the just man shall live by faith because we've all fallen short. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all have sinned, Paul says. And as a result, we can't uh, get it right. We can't do things in our own energy, in our own efforts to make it right with God or get right before God. And so we have inherited the sin nature from Adam, the very first man who fell in that garden of Eden and therefore it spread to all men. And, and all women. We inherited this sin nature. And so we are not sinners because we sin. We went over this on Sunday. We're not sinners because we sin. We have inherited a sin nature. Therefore, we are sinners. And so with this issue at hand, we, we do have quite a, a conundrum, if you will, if Paul, or excuse me, if God left us in that state. But Paul says otherwise. He says, thanks be to God that just as sin entered into the world through one man and through sin, death entered the world, Just as that entered in through one man, salvation, justification, the free gift of eternal life has also entered the world through one man, Jesus Christ. And so if you put your faith and trust in Christ, salvation is now attainable only through faith. You can't earn your salvation. It is only by way of faith, and therefore it is available to anyone and everyone. The Jew, the Gentile, the free man, the slave, the rich, the poor. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic status. It doesn't matter what your bank account says. It doesn't matter what race you are. Anyone who believes in Christ, we now become saints. We now become one race, a new race, all under the banner of Christ. It is a beautiful, beautiful, unifying salvation that we receive. The good news, the gospel is that the moment we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we have our sins paid for. We are innocent just as if we've never sinned. We're justified, Paul says. Christ's righteousness is imputed or credited to our account, and our unrighteousness is credited to Christ's account, which he paid for on the cross. We are also sanctified. Paul says we are baptized into Christ's death, buried with him so that I might be raised to walk with him in the newness of life. Our old self crucified with Christ, I am made alive now in Christ. So not only do we partake of his death, we also partake of his resurrection, and a few things come with that. Some wonderful truths that Paul shares with us that we now receive. We are now dead to sin. That old taskmaster, that old authoritarian dictator, the, uh, the sin that, that used to uh, rule over us is now we are dead to sin. That old man rendered inactive, rendered useless to sin. Now, it doesn't mean that that sin can't, and Paul's going to talk about that here in the back half of chapter 7 doesn't mean that we're not susceptible to to sin because we're still in this fleshly body. We still have this sin nature indwelling inside of us. And we're going to talk about that this evening. But we are rendered inactive to sin. Paul says we are now dead to sin. Sin no longer has authority over us. We are also dead to the law, which is an incredible uh, uh, um, thought to think about. 
And, and we went over that on Sunday. We are now dead to, to the law, meaning that the law has no jurisdiction over us. It has no authority over us either. And we were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. So as Christ died to the law, now we also died to the law. And he used an illustration in chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, the illustration of the married woman to the man. It is a binding agreement, especially in the Jewish culture. The women, the women did not have the right to initiate a divorce. Therefore, she was bound under her husband in that agreement. It was a legally binding agreement she had no way out of. So to us, as, as the natural man, the natural woman, we were bound to the law with no way out. But because we were made to die through the law, the body of Christ, we were now free to join to another we were now free to be joined to Christ in this love relationship, no longer joined to the law through the authoritarian uh, relationship, through that legalistic relationship. We are now joined to our Lord through a love relationship. And so now we're able to serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. The newness of the Spirit, we have a new life in Christ. We get to serve through by way of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter or the oldness of the law. So our faith in Christ now affords us complete exoneration, vindication. Again, we're found innocent from our past sins. We're dead to sin. We're free from the power of sin, that cruel taskmaster. We're free. We're dead to the law. So we're free from the jurisdiction and the power and the authority of the law. And because we died to the law, now we can be married to another. We can be married to Christ. We are now the bride of Christ, bonded to him through a love relationship not an authoritarian relationship like we once were to the letter. So we're going to notice now in verses 7 through 13 that Paul is going to use his firsthand experience, and he's going to speak in the past tense. When he was Saul of Tarsus, before he converted to Christianity or before he accepted Christ as his Lord and Savior, he's almost going to be talking about as if when he was Saul of Tarsus. You're going to see some past tense language there where he, he, uh, he will speak in the past tense. And we also at that point can also then uh, project ourselves in the past tense as well. We can start to uh, apply those types of uh, um, verses to our lives as well. So we're going to start in chapter 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to no sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I once was alive apart, excuse me, I once, verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did, not, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. So Paul says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Again, he uses this type of uh, questioning tactic quite a bit in Romans, and he answers it right away. It's a rhetorical question. May it never be. It could also be rendered certainly not. The use of word sin here not, isn't, isn't the act of sin or the individual sins. It's more about the principle of sin. It's the concept of our fallenness or our fallen nature. So what shall we say then? Is, our, is the law uh, sin? No, our, our, our fallen nature is, is uh, the, the problem. It's not the law. 
And so he says, certainly not. The natural man in his fallen state is constantly trying to get back right with God. In his sin nature, he makes attempt after attempt to get right with God, to get right before God, and time and time again, he falls short. So he says, certainly not, the, the law is not sin, the law is good. He'll, we'll see here later on that he says it's holy, it's righteous, it's good. He says, on the contrary, I would not have come to no sin except through the law. In the book of James, James says that the law is as a mirror, it exposes sin. I don't know about you guys, but when you wake up in the morning and you look into the mirror, there's some harsh realities, there's some harsh truths that happen when you look pretty close into that mirror. It just turned, uh, I just had a birthday last week, and Man, I'm looking at pictures 10 years ago. There's some harsh realities in that mirror that weren't there 10 years ago, right? There's a little bit more gray hair. The, the hair's receding a little bit more. Got the crow's feet along the side. Maybe the teeth are yellowing a little bit. Dark circles under the eyes. There is some harsh realities. That mirror is unforgiving. It is telling the truth. And that's what the law does. The law is unforgiving. It tells the truth. As, as harsh as it is, as difficult as it is to come to grips with, the law is as a mirror. If you don't look in the mirror and went about your day, you would be ignorant or naive to the truth. So that's what Paul is saying. The law brought, brought this to my knowledge, brought this to my understanding, and therefore I would, have not to, I would have not come to know my sin if it wasn't for the law. And so he says, For I would not have known about coveting if the law had said, You shall not covet. And it's very interesting that out of the Ten Commandments, out of all of the commandments he could have chosen, he selected coveting or covetousness as the one to highlight in this particular passage. You know, when you look at the Ten Commandments, especially the, the last six that are man's uh, righteousness towards other man, how we interact with one another uh, person to person, you see the, you know, honor your parents, you shall not murder, shall not commit adultery, shall not steal, uh, you shall not bear false witness or lie. And, and, and all of these are, are borne out through external uh, means. You can see those things actually manifest in a person's life. You can see adultery, you can see lying and murder and, and dishonoring of parents. But covetousness is an inward sin. Covetousness can be done inwardly and be masked uh, with righteousness on the outside. So he, selected, so he selects covetousness very strategically. Paul is a very, very uh, uh, smart man, and under the uh, inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it is on purpose. If you desire to have another person hurt or killed, that is the same as murder. Jesus taught about that on the, the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, if you desire to have another person's spouse, that is as adultery. If you desire to have another person's possessions, you're coveting their possessions, that is as if you are stealing. You see, this can go undetected in a person's walk. People can mask these types of feelings, these types of thoughts, and they can often fantasize about things that they shouldn't have that aren't theirs, and, and again, put on a righteous exterior. And Paul talks about this covetousness. Because remember, Paul was an ultra-righteous Pharisee back in his day. When he was Saul of Tarsus, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, he was a Pharisee. He was, a strict, he was in strict adherence to the law. But that didn't mean that he didn't covet. He might have masked it with his righteousness and with his pharisaical uh, outward exterior, but it doesn't mean that he wasn't coveting. And everybody in here, if you were 100% honest with yourself, even today there might have been something that you saw that you wanted and it wasn't yours, or you started to fantasize about something that wasn't yours. It's covetousness. It's something that is against God's law. And so he chooses it because, again, it's an inward sin that can be masked with external righteousness. And so it's subtle, and it can allow to continue, and it can have a cumulative effect, 
And it can gradually become more and more pervasive in your life to the point where these inward desires start to manifest themselves outwardly. And so in short, sin, before it manifests itself outwardly, is is conceived inwardly. And so therefore, it has to be dealt with on an inward level before it gets manifested uh, outside of the body. So Paul, through the Holy Spirit, uses covetousness as an example. He uses it very strategically. He says, but sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. He said, sin is an opportunist. Notice it said, but sin, taking opportunity through the commandment. Sin is an opportunistic uh, entity. It will, it will seek its opportunity. When the commandment came, that's when sin entered. And a law, a rule, when, when a law or rule is enacted, my sin nature sees it as a call to action. Not a call to action to adhere to it, but a call to action to rebel against it. We talked a little bit about it last Sunday. We talked about, you see a, 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 a sign that says wet paint. You see a sign that says, don't walk on the grass. You see a sign that says, don't pick the flowers. They're just for, they're just, just for, for a show, right? And all of a sudden, there's this urge in you to maybe touch that wall or to walk on the grass or to maybe just have one flower. One flower won't hurt. The law arouses my sin nature like a magnet draws steel or like a moth to a flame. It just starts to uh, uh, attract that sin nature and, and its rebelliousness. And so when he says, I'm alive apart from the law, I had uh, an an idea that, or um, a story that illustrates this. When I was a kid, uh, I grew up in a condominium complex not too far away from yours, over on Notcatel. I don't know if you know of the Bradford places over there. But I grew up there when I was from five years old all the way through the time I graduated high school. So uh, a a long time, we we would go through that uh, condominium complex on on our bikes, and we knew every square inch of that place. And so as I grew older, I obviously got my driver's license. And again, I knew every square inch of that place. So to get home, I would navigate the back alleys. I knew exactly how to avoid traffic, avoid any of the backups. And I would get home quickly that way. And so after I moved out and and did my thing, I went back just to kind of check out the old neighborhood one day. And I went through one of the old intersections and I noticed there was a stop sign at an intersection that had never, ever had been a stop sign. All of a sudden, there is now a stop sign where I had multiple times, hundreds of times, gone through on my bike and gone through on my car, in my car. And there was a part in me that resented the fact that there was a stop sign at this particular juncture. I had gone through it multiple times, so I blew that stop sign. My rationale was I lived here long before the stop sign was ever put in place. Before the law was ever enacted, I went through this, jun- this little juncture right here without ever having that law dictating my decision. So that law, all of a sudden now, is, is taking opportunity. It's, it's, it's an opportunity now for my sin, right? The commandment came in and produced in me uh, uh, that, that level of rebelliousness. Now, if a cop witnessed that blatant disregard for the law, he would have pulled me over. Would my rationale to the cop, to the law, have any bearing in his decision to give me a ticket? A- absolutely not. I was once alive apart from the law. I used to go through there, no problem, didn't even think about it. But once that law came in, I wasn't able to just go right through that stop sign anymore. I would have to abide or uh, uh, not violate that law. But when that commandment came in, when that stop sign was installed, sin became alive in me. And at that point, when I committed that, that uh, moving violation, if you will, there was a resentment to that commandment, and my sinful nature within me immediately wanted to rebel. 
wanted to blow that stop sign, and I did, and therefore I'm in violation of the law. In Paul's words, I died in, in that sense. So when he's talking about the Mosaic law, it's the same idea. So you got to think, why was a stop sign put there in the first place? Why would that condominium complex put a stop sign there in the first place when years and years went by without a stop sign? And the logical conclusion would be there's probably a number of near misses, a ton of accidents that maybe just uh, didn't happen, or maybe there was a couple bad accidents and they said, we have to do something. We have to do something to, to make it safer here. And that's what God's law does. God's law is perfect. It doesn't tell us not to do things because it, it's, it's, uh, try, he's trying to keep us from fun. He's trying to protect us. He's trying to restrain evil in our lives. He's trying to put guidelines and, and parameters around our lives that protect us from the sin that can riddle our lives and, and, and cause pain, hurt, and, and discomfort. So with the law, there are consequences to keeping it with obedience. And also there is consequences for rebelliousness, for breaking the law. And so, and, and verse 10, it says, And this commandment which was to result in life proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. See, the design, the ideal, the intention for the law, notice in verse 10, the commandment which was to result in life. So the ideal, the intention for the law, the commandment, if it was obeyed, it was to have right standing before God. But again, in our sin nature, we're unable to do that. Leviticus 18.5 says, So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live, may have fellowship with God, may live if, the, if he does them. I am the Lord. And so we see the reality is sinful man fails to do the will of God. But if you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live, you may live if you can keep them. But we fall short, and as a result, our sin nature rebels against God's laws. And Paul said that sin is deceptive. If you notice, sin is deceptive. It takes opportunity through the commandment, and it deceived me, and it killed me. Sin is deceptive, using the opportunity of, of the law to kill me and to separate me from God at this point. And remember, this is pre-converted Paul. This is not Christian Paul. This is Saul of Tarsus. He is a, a non-Christian at this moment. So sin is a grand opportunist, and it used the commands of the law against me. That's what he's saying here. In Galatians 3.21, Paul says, Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. So if there was a law given that could impart life to us, if there was a, a, a law that we could keep, 100%, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. So then, he says, verse 12, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Verse 12 says the law is holy, it's righteous and, it, and it's good. The problem isn't with the law, the problem is with me. It's not with the law. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be, he says, certainly not. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. Again, the flaw in this equation is my sin nature. The law is holy and righteous and good. My fallen nature is the problem. My fallen nature, uh, inherited through Adam, is, is the problem. The misuse or, or disobedience to the law for, by an unsaved person does not alter the law's character or the goodness of the law, or the righteousness of the law, or the perfection of the law. 
the misuse and disobedience by the unsaved man, by the uh, unconverted man, just shows, my, it just shows the, the flaw of my sin nature. The challenge for the natural man is not to understand the concept of sin. I think even those who don't know the Lord understand the concept of sin, understand falling short, not meeting a standard. The challenge is understanding the sinfulness of sin, the way in which God views sin. See, man has attempted to minimize or camouflage the severity uh, of sin through creating uh, alternative definitions, labels, masterful ways of describing certain behaviors, and, and we've done a really good job of masking it, minimizing it, camouflaging it. For example, one is not a drunkard, but they suffer from the disease of alcoholism. God says drunkenness is when you are intoxicated to the point where you have been overcome by that substance, whether it be alcohol or any other substance. When you are under the influence of something that now has power and control over you, it's drunkenness. It's not a disease or some other label. A person is not a liar now, but they maybe have told an untruth. They've stretched the truth. They are very creative with their words. No, if you don't tell the truth, you are a liar. It's plain and simple in God's word. What some classify as art, God would deem filthy and repulsive. There's some quote-unquote works of art that if I were to describe them up here in the pulpit, it would be completely inappropriate. It would be completely offensive. But yet, the, the unrepentant natural man deems it as art. God would classify it as filth and repulsive. What a person has committed adultery, it is termed as having an extramarital affair. Living with your girlfriend, your boyfriend, having premarital sex is fornication in God's eyes. It is sin. And again, that sounds judgmental. It sounds harsh. But again, the law is the law. It is harsh. It is very rigid. There's no way out. There's no wiggle room. So when we look at these types of camouflage, these types of minimizations of sin, it's just man's way to, to, to try to soften it. And God's word is very clear and it's very definite about sin. The foolishness is the attempt to minimize the seriousness and the severity of sin, and it's what God, and we have to see it the way God sees it. When David committed uh, adultery with Bathsheba, he first coveted her while she was on that rooftop taking a bath. He then tried to cover his sin by murdering Uriah and while he was on the battlefield. He engaged in sin, but when you look at David in Psalm 51.4, he says, against you, he's talking to the Lord, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. In one single verse, God, or David refers to God six different times. He acknowledges God six different times in this one verse. There is no mention of Bathsheba. There's no mention of Uriah. Yes, he did sin against those two. Yes, he, did just have, he didn't just have an extramarital affair. He didn't just stretch the truth with Uriah. He committed adultery and he committed murder. But when he confesses his sin to God, he recognizes that he sinned to God. He recognized that his sin not only impacted Bathsheba and Uriah, but he sinned against the Lord God. And God takes sin very, very seriously. Think about it this way. Think about the severity of sin as it relates to the person who it's being committed against. So let's take the sin of assault. Hitting somebody in the face. Let's just say that. So let's say an entry-level police cadet assaulted another fellow police cadet while they were in the training academy. The punishment may be some low level of detention, maybe cleanup duty, maybe physical labor of some type. 
let's say that same police cadet, that entry-level police cadet, assaulted the chief of police who happened to be just walking through and visiting that training. I think there would be a harsher punishment if he assaulted the chief of police. I don't think it would just be detention or cleanup duty. It might be jail time. It might be a disqualification from ever being in the law enforcement agency, period. Let's say that same entry-level cadet were to attempt to go after the president of the United States. I don't think it would be a disqualification from law enforcement. He would be executed on the spot by the Secret Service who have been commissioned to protect the president of the United States. So as you, get, uh, as you look at that similar sin, that's, that, that, that sin of assault, assaulting somebody, physically putting your hands on somebody, you see in each case the act of striking another human being remains the same. But the seriousness of that offense escalates as it is related to the dignity and the rank of the person who's being offended. So how much more when we are offending God? We may sin against our fellow man, which carries with it temporal consequences and temporal uh, reactions. But ultimately, as David stated, when we sin, we sin against God, and it needs to be carried as such. We need to have that type of mentality when we're thinking about sin. This law is not sinful. Rather, it is holy, righteous, and good, Paul says. The law is not sinful. Rather, it is holy, righteous, and good. It is my sin nature that is sinful. However, the law arouses the sin nature. The law reveals sin when it is committed and then kills that natural man as a result. So the conclusion is in verse 15. Sin is utterly sinful. It is so important that as Christians, we understand how God views sin. We understand the severity of it and how he views it. So Paul, through chapter 7, has addressed how the spiritual man, verses 1 through 6, has come to Christ and has been delivered from the law. We are no longer under the jurisdiction of the law. And then here in these verses that we've just covered, the natural man, the person who is not converted to Christianity, has not accepted Christ as his Lord and Savior. Saul of Tarsus, as we said, um, a man full of confidence in the flesh, he was no match for the law. And he referred to his own experience as such. So now we're going to take a look at the, at the man who is now Paul, the converted Christian, but there will be some uh, level of these dueling natures that are going to be going back and forth, if you will. We will see his, uh, the sin nature and this new nature that he's received as a result of accepting Christ. And just a kind of little quick snapshot of behind the scenes, we redeem our time here at Calvary Chapel uh, all the time. So I happened to pass Pastor Dane in the restroom this morning, and we were talking about this exact point. of He's like, hey, what are you teaching on tonight? And I said, oh, I'm in Romans chapter 7. And, and then we started talking as we we're washing our hands. So we're even rete- redeeming our time in the restroom as we're washing our hands. We're talking about Scripture. Just a little behind the scenes, we were talking about this particular verse. And, and what we were talking about, actually, is um, we were talking about there, there are some that believe Paul here is speaking of himself as a, uh, as a non-Christian. But we take the stance and the belief that, no, he is uh, now has been saved. He is somebody who is following Christ, and and he's speaking it from, from that perspective. So verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, or it could also read carnal, sold into bondage to sin. Verse 15, For what I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. Verse 16, but if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. 
For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want to, excuse me, for the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But I am doing the very thing I do not want. I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. And there is some very, very powerful scriptures in here that I'm going to do my best (laughs) to explain and to expound upon because these truths, if we can grasp onto these as Christians, they're very freeing. But they also can be twisted a bit, and they can start to get convoluted and conflated with with other ideas. But there are are some beautiful truths in here that Paul is speaking about, and they're rather radical ideas. Paul points out, first off, he says, For we know that the law is spiritual. For we know means, okay, that's established. We already know that the law is spiritual. It originated from God, who is spirit. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. John chapter 4, verse 24. God is spirit, and we must worship him in spirit and truth. And because God's law is holy and righteous and good, and now Paul adds spiritual, it stands to reason why my flesh is in opposition to it. The natural, the natural person, the natural flesh, that my flesh, uh, the flesh that's in me, my sin nature, stands in opposition to the law. And then he says something rather sobering. He said he was sold into bondage. Th- this phrase really, I, I had, to, had to meditate on this phrase for a bit because it graphically represents man's status in his natural sinful state. We were sold into bondage to sin. It describes the totality of our sinful condition. We were sold into bondage to sin. You know, being a slave to sin will numb you and blind you to the point where you do not know what you are doing anymore. Notice it says, for what I am doing, I do not understand. Sin has that effect on you. It has that impact. It can numb you. It can blind you to the point where you do not know what you're doing anymore. You don't understand it. Why am I doing this very thing that I don't want to do? Slavery is a miserable state whereby the one in bondage goes through the motions at best under the authority and control of his or her master. If there is any level of obedience, it's not really by choice but by compulsion. You're you're, you're basically doing it maybe to avoid some level of punishment or some consequence. So this is a very sobering statement that he says that uh, the sin nature, uh, we're sold into bondage to sin. And then verse 15, for what I am doing, I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do. Has anybody ever been in that position where as a Christian, you just did something and you can't believe you just did it and and you're grieved over it. It, it? It hurts you, but I am doing the very thing that I hate. The very thing that I hate, I just did. The very thing that I despise, I just engaged in. Verse 16, but I do the very thing I do not want to do. I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Paul is explaining here that when we accept Christ as our Lord and Savior, we do not develop this split personality, but rather we have two different natures present within us. We have that sin nature and the new nature that we received when we accepted Christ. Coming to Christ makes us whole. We're a triune being. We're flesh, we're, we're soul, which is our mind, will, and emotion, and then we're spirit. So when we come and we're born again of the spirit, we are now a triune being as well. We have now connected with, Lord, with the Lord on that spiritual level. So when we come to Christ, we have this spirit-filled life. Jesus said, you must be born again of the Spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. So we now are born of the Spirit. But we still have this this flesh 
this uh, flesh nature, the sin nature that, that dwells within us. And Paul is saying here that even though we have received Christ, that we are born again by the Spirit, we can have moments where our mind, will, and emotions are controlled or set on the things of the flesh. We can set our mind, will, and emotions on the things of the flesh, and therefore we have, that sin nature is then aroused. So I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. The very thing I hate. So that means you understand that there is something, the believer is not indifferent to the law. You understand that the law is good, that it's holy, that it's right, and that you agree with it. So if you're hating the very things that you're doing, that means that you're in agreement with the law, that you understand what you're doing is wrong. The old nature, the sin nature inherited by Adam is still present within us, and it's in direct conflict with my new nature that I've received from Christ. Paul expands upon this a little bit in Galatians 5, 17. It says, For the flesh set its desire against the spirit. Notice you have the flesh and the spirit, and they're at opposition. He says, And the spirit against the flesh. For these are an opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Your spirit and your flesh are at opposition within you. And so that's why you have this contrast, this conflicting, these conflicting natures uh, within you at the same time. My flesh, my old nature warring against my new nature, the spirit-filled man. And so these two natures are incompatible. They're irreconcilable. They are like oil and water. So no, now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. This is the verse in chapter 17, and he reiterates it, I believe, in verse 20. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. It almost sounds like Paul's taking a step back and trying not to be responsible for his sin. It's not me, it's the sin that dwells in me. Am I understanding that correctly? Am I reading that right? Is Paul really saying that he's not the one committing the sin? It's just the sin dwelling inside of him? And the truth of that is, is, is the answer is yes. When Saul became Paul, he, he was made right before God. Remember, we're justified. The just shall live by faith. So there's my, my, my salvation is sure. There's nothing that I can do at this point to lose my sin if I have these momentary uh, hiccups, these times when I get in the flesh, these times when I blow it. I'm not going to blow it. Now, sin is not okay. It's not that you get a pass. What Paul is saying is, it is it's explaining the behavior. It's not excusing the behavior. Paul, through his new nature, he came to Christ as saying that he had those old fleshly tendencies still indwelling inside him. Again, it's not that I have a defiance or indifference to the law. I agree with the law. I confess that it's good. It's holy. It's righteous. It's spiritual. But it's the flesh which, which has set its desires against the spirit. And at times I find myself doing the exact things I do not want to do and, and not doing the things I ought to be doing. So let's take lying, for example. I recognize that lying is bad. It goes against God's law. It violates one of the Ten Commandments. And so I agree with the law. I, I understand the law and I agree with the law. But before I came to the Lord, I might have lied without abandon. If my lips were moving, I was lying right? I might have lied without a ban, ne never thought twice about it, never was convicted about it. The ends justified the means. As long as I got what my desired result, I really didn't care who I lied to or what I said. Now as a Christian, I don't want to lie. I want to tell the truth. I know, that law, I know that lying violates God's laws. It might blow my witness. It might give cause for those who are, are enemies of God to blaspheme. 
But when I get put in a precarious situation and my boss, my supervisor asked me if I knew anything about that $500 that, that wasn't in the till, and I just had had a conversation with my, uh, my, my um, coworker, and I knew that they were responsible for that $500, and I tell my boss, I don't know anything about it because I don't want to get involved. I don't want to get in the, in the middle of this mess. I just now have lied, just now lied to my boss. I walk away convicted. I walk away saddened, knowing that I did wrong, agreeing that the law is righteous and just and holy, and knowing that I fell short of that. That's the difference. Now I have a conviction. Now I have a chance to apologize to the Lord. I might even have a chance to make it right with my boss and go back and tell him the truth. I might know that telling jokes with sexual innuendos is not honoring to God. However, I'm around the guys at work, and one of the guys throws out a joke, and that joke, uh, not only do I engage in it and laugh at it, but I, I tell a joke of my own. And it's just as dirty, and it's just as raunchy, and all I, I did it to gain their approval and get a couple laughs. I know dirty jokes are unwholesome. I know I shouldn't be telling those jokes, but I realize I just entered into that sin. I, I entered into my flesh. And I blew my witness to a bunch of guys that I work with, and I, I committed to my, uh, I, I knew I shouldn't be doing those things. I hate doing those things, but I just engaged in that behavior. I got caught up in my flesh, and afterward, I feel ashamed. I feel terrible. I traded a cheap payoff for a couple of laughs. I traded uh, my, my uh, violating the law for a couple of cheap laughs and exchanged it for sin. So Paul is making this radical statement here. It's not you. It's not the new you. It's the sin, the old nature indwelling inside of you. And now that you have a conviction of sin, now it's time to humbly repent. Come back to the Lord. Confess your sin, and he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin. His blood continually washes and continually cleanses you. It's not a one-time cleansing. It's a continuing, a continuing thing. So yes, we are dead to sin, our old self rendered inactive, but temptation arouses that old person and that old nature, and at times I blow it. I lie. I tell that dirty joke. I covet. I do those things what I, I hate doing, and I want to kick myself. It gets me down. I feel defeated. And this doesn't, again, excuse the sin. It just explains why it's occurring. But to understand that you're not married to the law anymore. The law has no jurisdiction over you. It doesn't mean that you get a free pass. It means you're in a love relationship with the Lord, and you can go to him, say you're sorry. He will restore you. He will forgive you. With godly sorrow and humility, you repent, ask for forgiveness. You rejoice in Christ's blood that continually washes and cleanses you from all of your sin. You're forgiven. That's what we need to hang on to. You see, the person that maybe has no godly sorrow will lie without abandon, will tell those jokes without a second thought. They are in their, their, in their sin nature, and they haven't received the new nature. That is them. That is who they are, and they're okay with it in their current status. But as Christians, when we blow it, we're not okay with it. It's the sin that dwells in us, but we still have to repent and we still have to come to God and, and, and confess our sin. So if you enjoy lying or telling a dirty joke, again, that is who you are. That is the sin in you, and, and you are walking in that sin. There's no conviction, and there's no repentance. There's no remorse. There's no second thought. So that's what the law does. It keeps you in that perpetual place of being defeated. If you want to go back under the law, under the jurisdiction of the law as a Christian, you will continually have this defeated uh, uh, mentality. You will continually say, I'm continually blowing it. And instead, you got to shift your eyes to the victory of Christ. 
so we can always come back. It doesn't give us a license to sin, but when we do blow it, when we do get in the flesh, we have victory in Christ. Because Paul says in verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in my, that is my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. The willing is present, but the doing of the good is not. There's nothing that dwells good in my flesh. There's nothing in me, in that old nature, that has any redemptive value. That, that flesh nature, there's nothing there. Jesus said in Matthew 14, 38, he says, Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And when he's talking about temptation, temptation can mean trial, but it also means the trial of a man's fidelity, his integrity, his virtue, and his constancy. It can be that type of trial. It's an internal temptation to sin. It was the same temptation by which the devil sought to divert Jesus, the Messiah, from his divine work. So if we're not on guard, if we're not watchful, we all have different bents to different types of sin. We all have different weaknesses, and the enemy knows our weaknesses. So Jesus warned us, keep watching and praying. Be on alert. Once we get a little complacent, once we get a little lackadaisical, that's when that sin can, can uh, not only be a temptation, but it can, we can enter into that sin. So he warned the disciples, therefore, by extension, warning us, be unalert against temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And those areas of weakness will be exploited by the enemy. He will find those areas of weakness if we're not on alert and we're not watchful. Whether it be pornography, drunkenness, fornication, lying, covetousness, you fill in the blank. Whatever we have a weakness towards, if we're not watchful and we're not er uh, having a sense of urgency, we will fall. The two warring natures will continue to be at odds until we are in our glorified state. We're going to be, so how long will this war go on inside of me? How long will this battle exist inside of me, my sin nature and my new nature? It's going to exist when we finally get delivered from this fleshly body and we get delivered into our glorified state. But until then, our flesh and our spirit will be warring against one another. We will have these two natures going back and forth. The one we feed the most will be the one that is the strongest. So as you're feeding your spirit here tonight, as you get into your word, as you get into prayer, as you worship the Lord, you're feeding your spirit. You're staying on alert. As you stay in fellowship, having accountability with other brothers and sisters, you will be on alert. You'll be watchful. And therefore, temptation may come your way, but just as Jesus didn't enter into that temptation, you too can resist it. Your spirit can win uh, that victory over that warring flesh nature. Verse 21, he says, I find the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. Verse 22, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body. Again, here we go, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, saying I'm miserable. This is mis it's, it's difficult. Who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. So these two spiritual laws are, are at work. The law of God, the Mosaic law, the one that he received on Mount Sinai, and then the law of sin <laughs> enacted when Adam fell in the Garden of Eden. The entire human race came under this law. 
the law of sin. Who will set me free from this body of death? Who's, it's not what, it's who. And he answers that question very quickly. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who sets us free. And then Paul reiterates that he's serving the law of God with his mind, his inner man. But the old man, the old nature of the flesh is serving sin. You have this warring, these warring natures going on back and forth. During my coaching days, I was coaching a, a girls basketball for a couple years. And I became the varsity girls coach just down the street here at Los Alamitos High School. And there was a particular young lady uh, that had a huge heart. She loved basketball. She loved the program. She worked extremely hard at her, at her game. But something was holding her back. Uh, she had this tendency when she shot the basketball, and I don't know if you know about shooting the basketball too much, but your thumb should not be involved. And so when she followed through, she would flick her thumb out, and she would get this weird side spin on the ball, and the trajectory of the ball would be flat. It's supposed to have a nice little arch. So she'd have this flat trajectory on her shot. She'd have this side spin when it should have back spin. And as a result, her shot was all over the place, really inconsistent, and she wasn't able to shoot the ball with any sort of effectiveness. So as I got to know her a little better and, and her dad, I offered, I said, listen, we can work on your shot. We can work on your mechanics. And I told her, you know, let's, let's meet at 6.30 in the morning, a we'll, couple days a week, and we'll just go through the basic mechanics of your jump shot. And so as we worked, I would explain, I would model, I would demonstrate the, the proper techniques and, and the mechanics of a jump shot. And she agreed. She said that she understood. She agreed that the technique was right, that it looked right. And so we were in the gym working on this, and she, she would agree in theory that this was correct, and she knew that the mechanics I was teaching were correct, and her dad also agreed as well. And so with each passing day in our, in our 6 a.m. shooting sessions, she would show gradual improvement. She was unlearning the bad habits of this thumb, this, this bad habit she had developed over the years. This is how she learned to shoot the basketball, and sometimes it's more difficult to unlearn a bad habit or a bad tendency than, than to learn the good. So this follow-through that she had developed constantly persisted, but she was getting better and better. And so the side spin started to, to show backspin, and she started to have some level of success in these 6 a.m. sessions. Now, mind you, there is no defense, and we're just shooting half speed. So as she became more accurate and consistent with her shot, we would then start to use that in maybe a scrimmage. But inevitably, when we got into a scrimmage situation or when she got into a game situation, guess what happened? That thumb came out, and all of a sudden, the bad tendencies, the bad habits started to rear their ugly heads. The old tendency of her thumb, the, the muscle memory would take over, show its ugly self, and the jump shot would go left, it would go right, it would be flat, and, and she just continually uh, shot the ball the way she did prior to. It was almost like our sessions didn't even exist. So during a timeout or a stoppage of play, I would, I would bring her over. I said, you know, you're, and she goes, I know, my thumb, my, my thumb keeps getting in the way. And she would agree with me that the, her thumb wasn't the culprit, and, and we would agree. And again, we would meet back at 6 a.m. And, and, and try it again. But time and time again, the ugly side spinner thumb would follow through, and, and, and she just couldn't get it out of the way. As her coach, knowing that she was giving it her all, knowing that she wasn't indifferent to my teaching, she wasn't defiant to me as a coach, I didn't kick her off the team. I didn't berate her. I didn't continue to give her, I, I continued to give her more playing time. In fact, I also recognized the things that she did well. She was an amazing on-ball defender. She would dive after a loose ball and sacrifice her body. She was an amazing teammate, always encouraging to her teammates. 
She was taking multiple AP classes, had a 4.3 GPA. She was a wonderful young lady. And so just because she had this one flaw that kept popping up, I wasn't going to kick her off the team. This member of her flesh, it reared its ugly head from time to time. Yes, she was miserable. Wretched jump shooter that I am, I think she would maybe even call out, right? She was so frustrated. She was miserable, not able to master this this technique. But in her mind, she was attempting to do the right thing. And every now and then, this old tendency would come out. The thumb would come out in her jump shot. But you know what? Even if she completely fixed her jump shot, I wouldn't have loved her anymore. I wouldn't have had any more fondness for her. I was hoping that her jump shot would work itself out, but it never quite did. But as her coach, I didn't base my affection for her on her jump shot. I based my affection on, on, for her for the, the, the quality of individual she was, the heart that she had, and all of the great things that she did for others and, and, and who she was as a young lady. So I knew her heart, I knew her devotion to the game, and I wasn't going to just kick her off the team as a result. And, and that's what Paul is saying. The old man, the, the law of sin, it, it, it's in my members. The new man serves the law of God, the law of, of my mind. The law of my mind agrees with God, recognizes his law is holy, and wants to be like that. I want to have a good jump shot. I recognize that what the coach is saying is correct. But the law of my members, that that darn thumb, wages war against the law of my mind. All the instruction that I had, all that practice that I was given, sometimes that, that old tendency comes out. And I serve the law of sin, which is in my members. My old tendencies, that old muscle memory comes out. It makes me miserable, wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from the body of death? Who will set me free from this jump shot of death, maybe is what Lauren would say. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who understands my heart. He understands that I'm not perfect. He lived a perfect life, so I don't have to live a perfect life. But you're saying, but the Lord says, be holy for I am holy. Be ye perfect. Yes, perfection is the standard. If the Lord said, be holy 80% of the time, that would mean that one out of every five instances, he's already conceded that I'm not going to be holy. The, 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 standard, the standard is 100%, but the reality is we are going to be imperfect at times. But don't beat yourself up. Don't go back under the law and be defeated. Repent, get right with God, recognize your sin, have that conviction, but celebrate the victory of Christ that cleanses you. That is the victory that is in Christ. Don't go back under the law, the yoke of the law. And that's what Paul is saying here. Sin is not to be taken lightly. I hope that's not the message that's coming across tonight. Sin is not to be taken lightly. And yes, we are to feed our spirit and have a victorious life. But if and when the flesh comes out and you stumble and you fall, Don't go back under that yoke of sin. Don't go back under the jurisdiction of the law because you don't have to. You've died with Christ to the law and therefore you can have victory with his resurrection. The old nature, the sin nature knows no law, but the new nature needs no law. Our love relationship needs no law. A love relationship between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, there shouldn't be all these rules, regulations, constrict love is without shouldn't be constricting it shouldn't be restrictive it should be free legalism adhering to laws whether it's the mosaic law man-made laws self-imposed laws it leaves you in a wretched state it leaves you miserable legalism also provokes the old nature into rebellion the do's and the don'ts 
arouse the sin nature into rebellion or heartless compliance. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Don't beat yourself up. Respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Repent of your sin. And just love. If you feel defeated, you're trying to live up to God's laws in your own strength. If you feel convicted, that means you have the Holy Spirit. Conviction and and being defeated are two different things. Be convicted of your sin. Don't feel defeated. Because when you get defeated, that's when you want to give up. And that's exactly uh, where the enemy would want you to be. Don't give up. Rejoice in, in the fact that you have victory in Christ's victory. For no good thing dwells in your flesh, Paul says. So when your flesh acts out, you just have to go back to that verse and know that there's no good thing that dwells in my flesh anyway. So I repent, I get back with God, and now I'm not under the law, I'm under the law of grace. I'm in a love relationship with my Savior. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you have given us this amazing truth. It doesn't excuse our sin, but it explains why at times when we want to do the very things that you've called us to do and we don't do them, and then the very things we hate, the very things we know we not ought to do, we do do them. And we get in this place of being defeated, condemned. The enemy will continue to heap piles and piles of condemnation on us. And we can just want to throw our hands up and give up and walk away. But we need to remember the truths that you've given us in Romans chapter 7 here. Lord, that we're not excused of the sin, but we can be convicted of our sin. Come back to you. Receive your forgiveness. Be washed and cleansed. Be restored. And then continue to be watchful. Be vigilant. Be fervent in our walk with you. And as those temptations come up, Lord, then we can resist that temptation as you did. Live a life of victory walking in the Spirit. And as we live a Spirit-filled life, our flesh continues to dwindle, becomes less of an issue, and we start to see victories over those areas that we once were falling victim to. And so we thank you for this truth. We thank you that your Word, though at times difficult to, to understand, Lord, the teacher of all things, the Holy Spirit, gives us this understanding. And so we thank you for that, Lord, tonight. And so, Lord, as we go forth this week, we pray that there would be victory after victory after victory for your people. Lord, that there are areas of of their flesh that, that are bent towards certain addictions, certain areas of sin. Lord, that we would be watchful, that we would be on guard. And that when temptation comes our way, we can resist the devil because we are submitted to you first. We've submitted to our God, and therefore we can resist the devil and he will flee. We can resist sin and not enter into that temptation. And then we just rejoice all the more that not only do we have victory over that sin, that we can rejoice in the the spirit-filled life. So Lord, help us to stay sanctified. Give us... uh, the ability to recognize those areas, not have any blind spots, and be vigilant in our walk with you. Be on guard. Not be lackadaisical. Not be complacent. Not be lazy. 
So thank you, Lord, for this time. We ask your blessing upon the rest of our week. And Lord, we just love you. In Jesus' name. I just want to, again, offer the free gift. Though we were born with a sin nature, we, through one man, can have a new nature. The just shall live by faith. So if you, again, are trying to live that spirit-filled life, but you're trying to do it in your own strength and you're just warring against your flesh, your flesh is warring against your spirit, and you're getting defeated, you're getting downtrodden, I'd love to pray for you. And first, make sure that you have the Lord in your life. Is there anybody that would like to receive the Lord tonight? Receive him as your Lord and Savior. Be cleansed of your sin, past, present, and future. Is there anybody out there? Would you please stand so I could pray with you? Amen. Is there anybody else? So would you preach this prayer after me? It's very simple. Meet it in your heart. Dear Jesus, I have sinned. I have fallen short of the standard of righteousness you've set. Thank you for suffering and dying on the cross for my sin. Thank you that your shed blood and broken body paid in full the penalty for my sin. I receive your forgiveness. I receive the free gift of eternal life. Empower me through the Holy Spirit and help me to live for you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. You've received the Lord into your heart. Past sins are paid for. You are now a new creation in Christ, made alive in Christ. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you a Bible. Please stick around so we can, again, share with you what exactly will happen from here on out. We, we, you just have been accepted into the family of God. The angels are rejoicing. We rejoice with you. If there's anybody in here trying to do it on their own strength as well, you're struggling, you're doing the things you hate, you feel defeated, you're wondering if God still loves you, I would love to pray for you tonight as well we could pray for one another. If you'd stand, we'd pray for you in that way. You can have peace. You can be assured that your salvation is sure in Christ. And we'll ask for strength over those areas that you are engaging in that you hate and maybe not doing the things that you ought to be doing. Can I pray for you? Well, why don't we go and stand for a final song. You guys have a blessed rest of your week. And we'll hopefully see you.